Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. The host of your show is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Choices Not Chances. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a book review. Um on a book by Captain Adolf von Schell of the German Army of World War One. The book is entitled Battle Leadership, Captain Adolf von Schell. So we'll just kind of get right into it, skip the pleasantries. We appreciate you guys being with us. And today we're going to cover what von Schell, all the way back in early days of World War One, um, as a commander, decided to write down diary entries all the way through the war so that he could later after action and then go on and teach almost at the German, what would be considered German war fighting school uh, to follow. So we're going to just briefly touch uh, on a couple of points throughout the book. And um, like I said, this uh, battle leadership, Adolf von Schell, not going to cover the whole book. It's definitely worth your time, especially if you're a warrior, especially if you are an NCO or a young uh, a young officer in the in the Army and the Marine Corps in, in, in any kind of uh, direct action um, element, it it would behoove you to read this. Just to get into it in the preface. Captain Von Schell's collection of lessons learned as a small unit infantry commander during World War One should be part of every Marine's professional library. It's one of the finest works of its type that I have read and compare favorably with Rommel's infantry tactics. Uh, infantry attacks. His observations on combat leadership and tactics are timeless and are pertinent today, just as they were in 1917. It should be a required reading for all combat leaders, particularly those serving on the platoon, company, and battalion level. D.M. Twamey, Major General, United States Marine Corps. So with that preface, we'll jump into the first chapter, but uh, hands down, I mean, been been to war, both Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, myself and Matt, uh, countless firefights, um, countless situations. And now even, uh, you know, in my, in my retired life, reading these, these works are, they are, they're timeless and they're very important, especially for today's NCOs, company, battalion, platoon level guys, um, operating and training to operate downrange. So, uh, without further ado, chapter one is called battlefield psychology. And there's a lot that goes with this and, uh, I'm going to cover a couple of points. We'll skip into it. Battle psychology, according to von Schnell, von Schell, he says, let us use a more simple phrase and call it the knowledge of the soul, knowledge of men. Knowledge of men in all wars has proved to be an important factor as a leader. It is probable that this will still weigh true in future wars. He goes on, as the knowledge of men, and let's just break right there, we'll get more into it as we touch on to it, Matt, but the knowledge of men is important. You need to know the knowledge of who's good shooters, who's your hitters, who's the guys that are more timid. I mean, just in our own squad in Marja, we had um, we had many me. Uh, we had many me, and many me was more scared to um, 
die drowning in a canal than he was of gunfire. And so he would opt to skip patrols and hold posts for six, eight, 10 hours because he was more comfortable there than going and jumping those canals and navigating the water. And a lot of times we were able to do that for him. We were able to let him, let him, you know, be on post with some of the other, you know, some of the other guys that had drawn posts and he'd even swap posts out sometimes. And I mean, I know you were there with me and you can, you can talk about the different psychologies of different guys. We had guys, um, just in the early days of the war that were awesome that we didn't think, you know, we didn't expect that much out of them. Then we had guys that, you know, like many me that, you know, it's not that he did anything wrong, but he was short and we had a lot of, a lot of water to navigate and it was just something in his head that he felt safer standing on post. So um, I can kind of relate to that. I think we all can. He goes on to say, we no longer fight in great masses, but in small groups often as individuals. Therefore the psychology the uh, psychological reaction of the individual has become increasingly important. As commanders, we must know the probable reaction of the individual and the means by which we can influence this reaction. The knowledge of men is especially difficult for two reasons. First, because it cannot be learned from books. And second, because the characteristics of the individual and in peace are completely changed in war. And I'd say that's, um, if you want to bring it out, that's, uh, that's, something we have to talk about because you have battle-hardened guys they go to another place you have to go to another place when you're over there you are now uh in, engaging in that uh that instinctive uh that instinctive primitive mind you know deep in the brain where your fight or flight symptoms come in and now you know for the marines for trained soldiers it's fight most of the time and how do we fight um, how is our, how's psychologically, what are we going through as we fight? Um, because we, we do, we do become different, different than, than stateside peacetime training Marines. Um, and then on top of that, throw a couple dead bodies on it, throw a couple dead friends on it, throw a couple kills on it. And, and, it, and it begins to melt. Um, therefore, uh, oh, let's get back here. Man reacts differently in war than he does in peace. Therefore, he must be handled differently. For this reason, we cannot learn in peacetimes the psychology of war. It is my belief that no one can give a prescription for the correct application of the principle of psychology in war. The only thing of which we are certain is this. The psychology of the soldier is always important. No commander lacking in this inner knowledge of his men can accomplish great things. And, um, you know, the notes that I put beside that were that... Uh, you know, leadership, especially psychological leadership of one's men, is not a one-size-fits-all uh, on the battlefield, uh, and it's not even that way in training. Uh, Matt, you can you can relate. You've been you, you've had several guys, you know, under your charge, both in the in the um, in the military and in the civilian world, and you might have to come harsh and rash, and, and you know, smack smack a guy's senses uh you know verbally or you know even in combat sometimes you gotta grab a hold of them and be like hey this is what we're doing and then that exact same situation can come up with with a different marine and you have to handle it completely different because if you do the same overbearing upfront you know tactics that you took with one of your hard charging team leaders to one of your junior guys that junior guy could crumble he could fold he could not respond right you know whatever the case and um and so it's, it's one of those things of understanding your guys, understanding the psychology of your guys, of your men as individuals, and then you will be better prepared to deal with them downrange. Uh, what do you got on that, Matt? 
I mean, yeah, you just have to know your guys all around. I mean, I think we brought it up in another in another episode where you don't have to go out and 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 party hardy with them. You don't have to uh, fraternize fraternize with them all together. But you should know what they got going on at home. You should know what you know what who are their parents. You know how how were they raised, and you should know their their mentalities as it deals with war fighting or as the job at hand, whatever that may be in business, sure. in war, whatever it is, because war is our business, right? Or, or um, you should just, yeah, you need to know exactly who they are and how to drive them toward the end state of whatever the mission is. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. with, with mini me, it wasn't, you don't yell at mini me. <laughs> you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to, you just go, Hey, mini me, I need you to do this. Now with Wetzel, yeah. you might have to give him a little bit of a kick in the ass or with bridges. And I was my three mainly my mm-hmm. three guys but mm-hmm. um that's just that's the way i feel but, i mean how yeah. have you how have you dealt with that in the civilian world like let's say in the oil industry how have you dealt with that you got young mechanics coming up underneath you and things like that and you're looking at looked at as one of the lead guys i mean um how is it that you can inspire or lead these young guys that are passionate about their job but maybe you're having a hard day or maybe they're having struggles at home or whatever like have you dealt with that kind of stuff in the civilian world with some of your teams yeah and no i mean i don't have a team necessarily i'm just more of one of the more experienced in my in my department or whatever you want to call it and uh just you gotta it always goes back to you you gotta know how to talk to them sometimes you gotta get a little a little verbose with them and uh yeah yeah and maybe kick him in the ass. But then other days, he might be so down that if you kick him in the ass, then he might just want to go quit, you know? Yeah, just dump on you. Yep. You know? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Uh, getting back to the book, and we'll close this point. Um, as long as armies are small on the battlefield and narrow, the leader can exert the psychological influence on his army by personal example. In modern wars, however, the high commands are necessarily far in the rear, and the majority of the soldiers never see them. Consequently, the tasks of influencing and understanding the soldiers psychologically has, in large measure, passed to subordinate commanders. For this reason, we shall deal only with the psychology of individuals and small units. And I read that to make this next point. He says, in peace, we should do everything possible to to prepare the minds of the soldiers for the strain of battle. We must repeatedly warn them that the war brings with it surprise and tremendously deep impressions. We must prepare them for the fact that each minute of the battle brings with it new assaults on the nerves. As soldiers of the future, we ourselves should strive to realize that we will be faced in war by many new and difficult impressions. Dangers that are thus foreseen are already half overcome. So that kind of goes to the whole point and that both the speeches, uh, public uh, public uh, events that, that I've done and that we've done, we talk about getting those experiences and training, getting those experiences through reading reenactments, war movies, podcasts, those kind of things makes you infinitely better at overcoming them. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. Uh, as a soldier of the future, we ourselves should strive to realize that we will be faced in war by many new and difficult impressions. Dangers that are thus foreseen are already half overcome. He's saying the stuff that we can learn about in books, in training, in podcasts, in reenactments, in um, 
in peacetime are going to make us infinitely better. It's we've half overcome that the job of uh, the totality of that mission of accomplishing that mission just because we've learned of it a little bit. And uh, and I couldn't agree more. So uh, huge right there, Matt. Any uh, any counters on that? I'm good on that one, bro. You hit it on the head. Good on that one. I'm sorry, I lost my spot. So getting back to it. The next one is the psychology of the warrior. Um, and I relate this a little bit to the five-day war, but I mean, it can be related um, <laughs> from 1970 to, to all the way up to 2022. I mean, there's no doubt about it can relate. It says the desire to act is, in my opinion, the reason why soldiers go willingly on so willingly on patrol. I repeat that it's extremely difficult to lie under hostile fire and wait because everyone feels exposed to blind chance. On a patrol, it's a bit different. Soldiers feel that he has the destiny in his own hands. He feels that he is not dependent on blind fate and that he's not forced to go this way or that, but he himself can decide what to do. And uh, there's a lot to speak that, you know, speak about that. There were several times in several of my guys in country when combat was raging that would rather go out. I mean, you could sit at the, you could sit at the firm base or at the cop and kind of lay around and wait, but time passes slow. You feel purposeless. You feel like you don't have a mission and, uh, and, and time just creeps. And then you have, you know, uh, impeding attacks or IDF that you could take. Uh, not that we took too much, but Lima company, they lied in waiting uh, on that same deployment in 10. And, you know, they got attacked at their firm base, you know, considerably, especially at night. So lying and waiting. Uh, one thing that I could say is um, the five day war when those 82 outgoings uh, popped off, boom, boom. And one of the most desperate things, even when you're on patrol is to hear that outgoing and you're holding and you know, they're probably shooting at you. You don't know exactly where it's going to land, but you know it's going to land in, in short short succession, right? So it's like you're just kind of waiting, and uh, there's nothing really more helpless than that, in my opinion. Like it, you know, there's literally nothing you can do but get small, and and uh, and so, yeah, man, crazy. So let's move on to the fourth point now: decentralized chain of command and commander's intent. In the German army, we use what we term mission tactics. Orders are not written out in the minutest detail. A mission is nearly, merely given to the commander. How it should be carried out is his problem. This is done because the commander on the ground is the only one who can correctly judge the existing conditions and take proper action if change occurs in the situation. There's also a strong psychological reason for the mission tactics. The commander, who makes his own decision within the limits of his mission, feels that he is responsible for what he does. Consequently, he will accomplish more because he will act in accordance with his own psychological individuality. Given the same independence to your platoon and squad leaders, it is certainly evident from the training and peace that there's more freedom allowed, allowed a subordinate leader in his training, the better he will, uh, the result will be. Why? Because he's made, it, he's made himself responsible for the results and allowed to achieve them in his own way. Um, this speaks to commander's intent. So the Marine Corps, we, we do use a five paragraph order. We do write it out in minute detail. Uh, everything from the orientation, situation, enemy mission, terrain and weather, everything is broken down. But with the follow on, with the caveat that, hey, don't fall in love with the plan. Um, you know, everybody can fall in love with the plan until you get punched in the mouth and then you got to resort to your training. Right. And so we kind of work that same way. Um, there were several times, another thing that it doesn't really talk about Von Schell's book, 
but he definitely uses, hey, this is commander's intent. This is what we have to accomplish. And then it's kind of on that next commander devise his plan. Same kind of thing that we do, only we do write it in minute detail. Um, uh, moving on. Um, Actually, I want to read this one more part here. A few more examples that Rand will illustrate the aspects of an uh, interesting subject of soldier psychology. In August 1914, we marched through, the Bel through Belgium toward, toward Leeds. It was a beautiful morning. The men sang. We were young, healthy, and we had the feeling of power and strength. On the road, we saw our first dead. Singing ceased, and the soldiers stared at their dead comrades. The seriousness of the war suddenly appeared before their eyes. And perhaps, too, they soon would lie on the edge of the road dead. In absolute quiet, the company marched on. Then suddenly, someone called to the dead man. Seems to suit you to sleep. Get up. It's breakfast time. They all laughed. The seriousness of the moment had vanished in a joke. High spirits returned. I, I, I highlighted this part, and uh, it's so, it's so. I guess, I don't think funny, but it's weird to me, or it's... Um, Maybe reaffirming is the word. It re it's reaffirming to me that it wasn't just us in our outfit that took dark humor and made light of situations, right? Um, people have been doing that since since the beginning, you know, since the very beginning, because there's only one way to really deal with that stuff effectively, and that's humor. Um, you could you could go internal, you could shut down, ball up, and rock on the edge of your cot waiting for the mission, or you could laugh about it. And like we did after Eman's speech in and uh, Marja, go back and somebody you know it was all serious. Bags, body bags are getting packed, sandbags are getting put in, in kits, and then somebody throws on a Taylor Swift song, and you know the striptease dance starts in the GP tent, and we're on the eve of the biggest fight of our life, and you got Marines doing the striptease for for each other, and uh, hilarious, um, uh, hilarious actions and. Uh, and, and it was just what we needed. Another example of that that I have noted is um, February 21st, the day we lost Hanson. It was a it was a deep fight. It was an ugly fight. Guys were you know rattled. Um, we got back and got the word that Hanson had passed, and kind of passed that to everybody. And we as uh, platoon minus were kind of standing in our side of the street where our birthing was over there with Heinz squad. And it's kind of our squad and Heinz squad, just kind of standing there remembering Hanson talking about Hanson. And uh, some guys were crying. Some guys were, you know, just upset. And uh, Bubba walked out of that, uh, Bubba walked out of that hooch or not hooch, that mud hut. And he looked at us and he just smiled and he said, don't worry guys, it's going to be okay. And he reaches down in his cargo pocket and pulls out two barn swallows that he had caught and put in his pocket inside the, the mud hut. And he just releases them like they were like a couple of doves or whatever, right? And the birds fly away and everybody kind of starts laughing. And, you know, that's what you needed to carry on. And that's what you did. I mean, that's what you get when you are on the front lines where the metal meets the meat. Your friends go home and you stay and you fight and you got to get through it. Uh, and one good way to get through it is, is through that of dark humor. Um, back to the book. A day later, <clears throat> the first wounded soldier is seen. He's groaning in pain. A few comrades come up to him. One sees that the man the, that the men are depressed is the first wounded man they've seen. Who will be next? Then someone says, "It's a pity that you're not dead." Then I would have fallen heir to your beautiful boots. <laughs> the wounded man stops groaning. He notices for the first time how fine it is that he's still alive. 
It is in the autumn of 1916. The division is involved in a terrible battle, and the losses are heavy. At division headquarters, one sees only worried faces. What will be the result of battle? Suddenly, a bad, shattered, and excited uh, battalion commander rides up with his orderly. He states, I desire to report that I am the only survivor of my battle. A moment of tense silence follows. Then the division commander says, you are in error, Major. Your orderly is still with you. Immediately, high spirits return. These little examples show the miracles that words have at the right time. It is a psychological reaction that defies all explanation. And that, again, goes to the dark humor. Saying your orderly is with you, man. Both of you survive. Um, these last two cases are going to be cases of uh, unexpected surprise attacks or unexpected espirit de corps brotherhood uh, that, that end up worn off, off the English, and we're going to go into those. At the Battle of Cambria, Cambria, a lieutenant with 20 men is defending a little clump of woods. He repulses several attacks. Another attack starts. Only a few Germans can continue firing. They are out of ammunition. What should be done? The lieutenant commands, fix bayonets and attack. Hurrah! 20 men attack. Eight English soldiers are taken prisoner. Why did the English surrender? Why didn't they merely laugh at the 20 Germans who were attacking? In February 1917, it's the same close combat on the mountain peak of the Capari uh, uh, Carpathians previously described. Fighting had lasted an hour. We were about to I'm sorry. We have not been able to drive through the, drive, drive the Romanians back. In one place, about six men are fighting. Their corporal is suddenly shot dead in their very midst. One of the men jumps up. The Romanians have killed our corporal, he yells, and he charges them to the midst of the enemy, knocking several of them down. The Romanians run to the rear, the Germans after them. In five minutes, we, re we recapture the mountain peak. These last two cases furnish examples of unexpected acts which, through their surprise effect, brought success. These things cannot be taught in peace. We know that psychology is tremendously important in war. It is a field unlimited to extent to which every conscientious soldier should give much time and study, yet it cannot be learned as one learns mathematics. It must be sensed. Unfortunately, we cannot formulate a set of psychological rules. Human reactions can never be reduced to exact science. War is governed by the uncertain and the unknown, and the least known factor of all of them is the human element. And that's a fact. I mean, we talk about we talk about war a lot. We talk about battle a lot. And what a lot of guys, uh, especially now in today's operating forces, what you should know is nobody knows exactly how they're going to react until bullets start cracking the air beside your face. And that's a fact. And it doesn't matter how tough you are, how big you are, how badass trained you are, what McMap belt you wear. Until bullets start snapping and suppressive fires laid down on your friends, you do not know how you're going to react. So the best thing you can do is immerse yourself in the training. Immerse yourself in every situation imaginable. Uh, just like we've talked about on here, TDG, war game, every scenario possible to your existence uh, and your profession that could possibly come up, whether your profession's war fighting or not. In this case, we're talking about war fighting. But in the case that you're a uh, team leader in a small business firm, you should be doing everything possible using every resource, asset, and uh, time available to you to make your team better at whatever your team is supposed to accomplish. 
so that's huge to take away from here. Um, kind of getting into that, the first days of war in chapter two, Von Schell says, no one knew how the human being would like, uh, how the human being would be likely to react to them. Not one could say how he himself would behave in battle. Under these circumstances, it would have been helpful for the officers and the men to know each other that served together for a long period of time, but this was not the case. For reasons that seemed sufficient at the time, almost all officers charged their duties on mobilization. It is true that the unusual uh, that they usually remained with the same regiment, but they took command of new units where they were unknown to the men and the men unknown to them. I uh, am reading another book right now, and we're going to have um, retired Lieutenant Colonel David Brown uh, share his tales of Vietnam as a company commander there. And uh, and in that in that they in, in, the, in the Battle of Vietnam, a lot of their spirit decor, a lot of their um, motivation and, and, and inspiration came from their leaders because they knew of them. Um, one of the uh, aspiring leaders and inspiring leaders was uh, Big Ernie, they called him. Big Ernie, and we'll cover more of that in, in the David Brown episode, but just because they were fighting for the commander they were fighting for, it brought inspiration. It'd be kind of like us saying, we fought for Colonel Christmas. Right. And Colonel Christmas, his father was a war hero. His brothers, you know, himself and they had big shoes to fill but we knew they had the bloodline and the lineage for it and because of that we assumed that because of where they came they would have the combat prowess and esteem to lead us and um i'm not going to say that in today's war it's all the way up at the battalion level um in a bigger fight maybe but our fight was more at a platoon and company level we also had a good company commander you know jp biggers former reconnaissance marine almost his entire time he knew what he was doing tactically he knew he could help us christmas knew he could help us and then you know follow down to that commander we got e-man and e-man was what we knew what we trained with what we lived with every day and we had our trust and confidence in e-man and so it's like almost like you don't want to let e-man down right there's no right. way we could let E-Man down and when you when you serve for somebody that that respect is coming these guys served for hindenburg uh, and it'll get into it later in the book, how war, what a war hero Hindenburg was. Well, not only that, that, think about the Marines that served under uh, Mad Dog Mattis. Oh, man. Mattis I mean, that's like Hindenburg, right? Yep. And or so, Jocko also likes to talk about. Uh, I just it just slipped my mind. I was thinking oh, about yeah. it and I lost it. <laughs> Uh, we get back into some more of this, but yeah, yeah, dude, a leader, a good leader, a leader that takes care of his men, that mentors his men, that is firm but is fair, and uh, and has proved himself in the combat arena. You take over, even if it's new guys, the new guys are going to hear about that uh, as it gets into the book here. Uh, today, this transfer officers appears to be a mistake. It is my strong belief that they're heavily burdened by the. Uh, heavy burden occasioned by the new impressions of battle that would have been considerably lessened had their existence that had there existed the feeling that unity and mutual understanding of long service engenders between officers and men one learns rapidly one learns rapidly in war and the first impressions no matter how important they may uh they may be are lasting ones thus i find that the events and the impressions of those first days are still imprinted on my mind although more than 16 years have elapsed since their occurrence and that's true that just goes to war 
uh, in general. You're going to see things, you're going to do things, hear things, smell things that just don't leave you. Uh, they don't leave your dreams, they don't leave your senses, and those first impressions. And, and, and that, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to their survival mechanism of the brain and how the brain works. It's like uh, anything that you do that comes close to terminating your existence, your mind is going to store and log that and say, we can never do this again, right? And so that speaks a little bit, um, that speaks a little bit to that. All right, so moving to the end of that chapter, the last, uh, the way that the book is kind of bro broken up, for those of you who haven't read it, it's just after actions, right? So he'll talk about some stuff through a chapter and then he'll take the most important two or three, four points of after action reviews that he wants to talk about and load it up. So we're going to move to the end of chapter two and go to the lessons learned. Lessons learned from these stories are, one, at the commencement of war, soldiers of all grades are subject to terrific nervous strain. Dangers are seen on every hand. Imagination runs riot. Therefore, teach your soldiers in peace what they may expect in war. For an event foreseen and, pre uh, and prepared for will have little, of any, if any, harmful effect. And he's simply saying there that whatever you are most likely to encounter, train that. If you train that, then you're giving your guys all these different training scenarios, all these different pamphlets, all these different books to read on that specific thing. And when they go through those, there's going to be things that they see, read, or do that did not work. Failures, right? Failures making them better at the next attempt. As long as we're making these failures in training, we're doing the right thing. When we start making these failures in the practical application of war, that's when people die. And that's when your friends get put in body bags. So it's uh, very important to take that first point. Point two, as a, as a leader, be careful both in sending and receiving reports. At the commencement of the war, 90% of all reports were false or exaggerated. Learn in peace to prepare your map, prepare your problems and your field exercises and your war games to give false and exaggerated reports. Otherwise, your subordinates will be accustomed to accepting all information they receive at face value. Um, and he has a short story about that. He says, during the first afternoon, the day in which I spoke, I was sent to a patrol against the fort. I finally reached the hill and in order to see better, I climbed a tree. My men remained below on the ground. Suddenly there was a loud crash and artillery shell burst just in front of us or in the branches of my tree. It was the first hostile artillery shell I'd ever seen. As a result, I fell all the way off my branch to the ground. My first thought, now I'm dead. As I hit the ground, however, my bones reassured me that I was entirely alive. My men ran away. I learned later that they had run all the way back to the regiment to explain to the discretion of, uh, discretion of an officer that stated I had been killed. This report was believed. The very important, first of all, it's, it's crazy that they would want to me that they would run away like that. I don't think we would have to worry about that in necessarily the Marine Corps, but comms, having communication with higher, having communication with your higher headquarters, those, those reports must be as accurate as possible. It cannot be that you're giving false reporting back to your higher command because it's just like any lie. If somebody comes to you for advice and they lie to you about the situation, you're going to give faulty advice. Even when you're trying to do the best possible good for them, they could be your friend, they could be your confidant, they could be uh, your mentor, they could be uh, your mentee coming up to you, a team leader coming up to you saying, this is what I'm dealing with. But because they didn't, uh, because they didn't give you the raw details and the raw account of what actually happened and it was exaggerated, your advice then is going to be flawed for what they need. And and it just continues down that road. So the best thing you could always do is, first of all, don't lie. And second of all, report as accurately as possible. 
we now have radios on the fields where we can get that information straight back and there's no need to run away and run down the regiment to tell somebody something. And so even, even you know, as wars go on, this is World War One, no comms. Okay, Roger, World War Two, we start to get comms. Vietnam, we start to get some comms. Is there still going to be some running back to get ammo to, to update a sit rep? Can comms go down? 100% comms can go down. We all know comms can go down. Uh, comms do go down. That's just normal. It's what they do, uh, in my opinion. Um, but making accurate, detailed reporting to hire will always be best for you. Um, there's some stories in the book where maybe we didn't report to hire the right way because we had ISR spying on us, uh, making sure we didn't go north of some lines. So there was times that we did that and it was wrong. And we got into situations where we shouldn't have been in. And we got into situations that could have ended up very, very badly. Um, and so I'm not saying that I've never done it. I'm not saying that war didn't take me and say, hey, I'm going to go get these guys even when they tell me no. I did that occasionally uh, once or twice, I would say, in that last push. But both times, um, though what seemed needed at the time was bad calls. Uh, you need to listen to your higher headquarters, especially in today's age where they can see everything on the battlefield. They may see something that you don't. And, uh, and uh, so that goes up. Well, what that uh, goes back to, too, is the bigger picture. Just because you see your four-man team or your 13-man element, you don't know what the hire is looking at at that bigger picture, whether it be a company, battalion, or for me, um, corporate-wide, or what are they seeing on the corporate side of things, whereas all you're worried about is your one job or the one service department that you're in, you know, and in business. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, like, um, that's something that's a little bit – it's new to me because it wasn't on the battlefield with me. Right. So I didn't see the big blue arrow. So, I mean, I seen it, I knew the big blue arrow was there. I knew what direction it, it pointed, but when you're on the ground and you're in gunfights every day, you're not necessarily thinking about that. You're thinking, all right, tell me where I need to go. Tell me what you want me to do. All good. I'm all good with it, but you're not really thinking about that. So on days where it's like, I have the enemy, I can see him. He just went in that compound and now you're not letting me go to that compound. I don't, I admit, I didn't get that. I, I understand now, but in the time when you're like, they're right there, like all I have is 200 more meters. I can go get them right now. I can drop a bomb. Why won't you let me do this? And usually there's, uh, there's reasons, you know, and, and what are some of those reasons? Maybe there's another operation going on. Maybe they couldn't deconflict fire zones uh, because you, you're sharing battle space with either the Brits or, you know, one, six, two or south or whoever it was, whoever it is on your battlefield. Uh, there's these deconflictions of fire that must take place, checking into airspaces. There's a lot of things that take place at that corporate or administrative level that you want to talk about at the battalion level, even maybe further up than the battalion level. And the bottom line is you as a corporal, sergeant, squad leader, team leader, whatever, you don't have control of any of that. And so you need to practice serenity, you know, change the things you can uh, and not worry about the things that you can't hope that you can know the difference between the two of them. Right. Um, I actually had an interesting experience about this exact type of event happening, delivered a, uh, a large forklift, like a 55,000 pound capacity. It's a big size. It's a good size machine. And okay. So first, first tell everybody what you do. So all right, anybody so that's just coming in that doesn't listen uh, on the regular give them a brief snapshot of what you do and then relate it to what we're talking about. So I'm a road maintenance technician for forklifts specializing in above 30,000 pound capacity. I work on anything from a pallet jack all the way up to container handlers and man lifts and all that. Um, so I delivered this 55,000 
pound capacity forklift. It's a good size machine. And as soon as it showed up on location, I said, that machine's, it's at that point for that lo- particular location where it's, it's getting to where it's, it's too big. They bought it to lift one piece of type of equipment that they have to load on trucks for the oil field. The operators were not too pleased with the size of it because they couldn't pick everything up on the yard. And I said, well, they bought it, you know, from the salesman and from the guy who actually ordered the forklift, who was the second in command at this particular location. They ordered it to lift that one particular piece of equipment because they'd have to rent a crane to load it any other way. And I explained that to the operator. He's like, yeah, but we can't pick up everything else that on the yard. I said, but it wasn't purchased for that. It was purchased to pick up. Well, we only loaded out this other piece of equipment that it was purchased for one time last year. I said, yeah, but look at the bigger picture. They may get be getting ready for 12 loadouts this year for that particular piece of equipment. And now it makes sense that they don't have to spend all the money to rent a crane, which is a large operation, times. 12 times this one year. And it pays for that machine in the future. That's that bigger mm-hmm. picture that you don't understand. You don't see the, the schedule in the future of the piece of equipment. And that's right. and I explained that to them. And it didn't right. help, but, you know, they're still going to have well, their you opinion. You say it didn't help. Maybe it didn't help at that time, but maybe later that night he went home and he was like, you know what? That tech that came out here, he had a good point. You know, this guy's job is to move equipment around the yard, not right. to decide what piece of equipment moves things around the yard. And if that piece of equipment is too big, well, guess what? Use one of your smaller pieces of equipment. I'm sorry that you have to change equipment, but that equipment was made for that job. Right. And you're doing these jobs over here. And yeah, yeah I so get I get that they only uh, that they only loaded out one last year. But like I said, they might be getting ready for 12, 20, 12 or twenty four loadouts this year. And crane renting a crane is not a cheap is not a cheap uh, expense for right. sure. And it, and it right. comes with a certain amount of safety factors as well. Whereas if you can do it with a forklift, it's safer and it's faster. So, right. but that's right. what I had on that particular point. So that goes point. to speak, you know, that's a, that's a perfect, uh, that's a perfect comparison to the civilian world and to the, uh, and to the oil field, especially is like, uh, yeah, man, like you got to know the big blue arrow. And if you don't know the big blue arrow, um, Find somebody to tell you, you know, what the big blue arrow is. Or not only uh, that, sometimes you don't need to know the big blue arrow. Yeah, there's times there's times where that's need to know information and you don't need to know it. You yep. need to do your do your job the best of your ability, the way you're told, complete your end state, whatever it is that you have to use and um, and not in, only the, in the fact that, oh, you're not important enough to know that. That's not that's not necessarily it. It's if the commander or the leader or the manager tells you a certain piece of information that he's not sure if it's going to change five minutes from now, it would be easier for him to withhold the information of the big blue arrow for another 10 or 20 minutes or forever. Because if you start acting on that certain piece of intelligence, then he has to switch you when the intelligence changes. He has to redirect your, 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 uh, mission or your instinct. Yeah. So, but it may be harder to reverse your course than tactical patients wait and not, and either not tell you at all or tell you at a later date. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I can agree with that. So back to the after action chapter two, point number three, you saw Set how up, many bro. company on the first day of war, on the first day of war, 
uh, sorry, we're getting back to the last point now. You saw uh, how the company on the first day of war marched into hostile territory without knowledge of the situation. You must learn in, in peace that in war of movement, you must go ahead without sufficient information on the enemy. Otherwise, you will, you will send an equally stupid lieutenant on patrol who will crawl all over the landscape for hours and finally locate his own troops. So he was just saying not having intelligence of the battlefield is, uh, is not what you want at all. Uh, so we're going to move now. I'm going to turn a couple pages. All good points. All good points for sure. Okay. Uh, this next, this next, uh, this next section is one in which is important to me. It's something that I talk about in my speeches. It's something that I talk about all the time, and that is, do we effectively uh, war game as leaders? Uh, that's both in business world and military world alike. Something I talk about uh, passionately in my speech when I spoke to the Marines of uh, Weapons Company 1-2 last month was uh, about Dakota Myers' Medal of Honor run. And when Dakota Meyer, uh, Myers talks about his uh, experiences on the Jocko podcast, it's very evident, and it's even literally said word from word for him, from him that tactically he had understood his enemy. He uh, read about his enemy. He went to schools about his enemy, and he paid attention. And because of all of those things, his tactical prowess, his schooling, and the fact that he knew what the enemy had been doing for the past month or so in Ganjabal Valley, he was able to tactical decision game and war game up in his mind every possible thing that could happen and every possible worst case scenario and go through it in his head over and over. If this happens, I go here. If this happens, I go there. If my team needs me, I go here. And, uh, and, and what turns out is he'd done that so much that the practical application of that run uh, was just a formality. It was a formality at that point because he had already TDG'd and wargamed in his head every specific and, and non-specific thing that may happen and knew exactly what he wanted to do if those things arose. And so when those things started coming down the ticker and they started actually happening, he had something to pull from, something from school, something from last month, something from boot camp. He had all these things to pull from, things that he read, things that he read about in sniper school just before that. All right. And he was able to practically apply that because he had already wargamed that up in his head. And that's important to talk. Uh, it's, a, it's an important thing to take away. Back to the book. The casualties on September 8th have been very heavy. The company for our young officers lost 62 and 120 men, with which had entered the engagement, more than 50%. Our field exercises, our map problems, and our war games should be conducted with as little information on the enemy as possible. Our tactical problems in peace will therefore more nearly conform to the realities of war. It will be remembered that at the very outset of the attack, all units became intermingled. What was the reason? Each unit immediately after crossing the swamp near Jacques hasted forward without waiting for the other troops. The result of the convert was a convergence on a narrow front of much confusion. Company after company and battalion after battalion moved forward to attack and was stopped. The lesson from this is prepare your attack well. The time devoted to such preparation is not lost. In this case, after crossing the only available bridge, the various units should have taken cover and waited for the advance to have been coordinated and launched on a broad front. Point three, 
The men, although well-trained and high of morale, were inexperienced in war and reacted strongly to earlier impressions. The reason, the reason may, be well, may well be that they had not been psychologically prepared for the severe trials that they were called upon to undergo. The conclusion to be drawn from this is obvious. We must teach our men in peace that battles differ greatly from maneuvers and that there will often be critical periods when everything seems to be going wrong. It is exceedingly difficult to teach men what to expect in war, but something along the lines may be accomplished if we study military history and teach our lessons to our soldiers. Very important. And that's kind of like the whole platform, right, is to make sure we can get as much out there to our new and current guys up in there and moving in their heads so they can instantly. It's that instant target acquisition. Boom, I have a situation. Ah, I can grab this over here. I know this and apply it. And uh, very important. Point four says officers must lead their troops personally and set the example. On 8 September, it was a battery led by officers boldly advancing into position that was responsible for the, the success of the action. Other phases of the battle similarly found officers leading the advance. This does not mean that the officers should be leading the advance for the, at the point of the platoon in every single engagement. But there will be plenty of engagements and occasions, however, when officers must set the example in order to inspire their troops or advance and hold their ground to face almost certain death. And that is the conclusion there of chapter three. A good decision now in the notes is better than a great decision later. So though we don't want to operate off of incomplete information and incomplete intelligence, um, and we do want to have tactical patience, there are times when making no decision right now can lead to, to, to certain death when making any decision other than no decision uh, can be the best thing that you do. It's a big thing that we preach in the Marine Corps uh, all the way coming up. A good decision now is better than a great decision later because in the game that we play, uh, momentum is everything, right? Uh, and so if you have the momentum, you need to press the momentum and don't stop pressing the momentum. Uh, huge part. Uh, chap chapter four, uh, you got right. anything on that before we move on? The only thing I had on that was on point four. It says officers must lead their troops personally and set them an example take that that uh word officers and just make that leaders in general whether leaders, you're a team yeah, leader well, it could be your non-commissioned officers it could be your staff non-commissioned officers um but generally you don't have a gp lance corporal leading the front and inspiring the men um something something to, from marja let's just let's just relate um there was a day that we were up and we were running a uh, a react mission up to one of the cops that we were in charge of and remember when we took some fire and lt got out of the truck and just started by himself leading a rush across that field uh chisel plowed poppy fields horrible and i had to get out and follow him you know right. and run as fast as i could to catch him and i'm like sir what the fuck are you doing where are we going uh, <laughs> you're faster than me and we're all alone. um but hey, if your leader goes, you got to go. I seen him running by himself and I would be damned if I wasn't going to get out and bring the squad or team, whatever combat power I could arouse at the time from those trucks and get across that field with him. Um, you and that was inspiring to me, just instinctually inspiring. Like I don't, he didn't give a command. Uh, he didn't say, hey, I see the enemy. He got out and he started sprinting across the field though. And that to me was inspiring enough. So well, he's doing it. He, you know, I'm doing it. Right. Well, and one other big uh, point for this this book in particular is it's written from an officer's perspective, mm. meaning Von Schell, but also yep. in those days in the military, not just the German military, across all militaries, all officers were more 
relied upon for their leadership on the battlefield. For sure. For so sure. just another little point I had. Yeah, for sure. In that one. So I, I think it's appropriate to just replace it with leader. Uh, leader could be team leader, squad leader, platoon leader, Yep. you know, company leader. Um, if you're a leader, it applies to you. Um, moving on chapter four, this uh, chapter is called leaving raw troops with battle, uh, battle tried veterans. Um, and this is huge. <coughs> it's a huge point. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a huge point. Uh, and we'll get into some of the points here. I'll read through them and then uh, we'll talk about it on the back half. It's a relatively short chapter, but there, there's much there's much to be taken in. Um, let us now consider a further experience with young troops, this time, however, under entirely different conditions. Shortly after the outbreak of hostilities, several new corps were trained in Germany and later in the autumn, sent to Flanders to penetrate hostile lines. The corps were formed of volunteers, generally students from the universities. Entire classes stood beside their professors in training. Soon, and their training, however, was insufficient. The question arose of placing still other corps in the field in the shortest possible time. The mistakes that had been made in October's corps would not be repeated with the new units. In consequence, about half of about uh, about the first of January, 1915, officers, NCOs, and men who had who had already had considerable combat experience were transferred to these new corps. As a general rule, these officers had been wounded and were now returning to the front from the hospitals. Every officer in fresh units had some experience in war. Many of the NCOs and men were similarly experienced. The composition of the new unit was such that all officers, about one third of the non-commissioned officers and one fifth or sixth of the men that were, uh, were all experienced. These troops were trained as units only for three weeks. They were then assembled into divisions and given new training exercises at divisions. They were then transported to East Prussia to take, pr to take part in the winter battle of Moserian Lakes. About the 10th of February, one of these young regiments retrained for north for the north had marched into a little village which they they called Krugelidishen. I can't pronounce that one correctly. Sorry. If I'd I say you nailed it. it. Okay. Here it remained two days during which the men were allowed to rest. It was terribly cold. The snow was about three feet deep. In every squad there were one or two men who had already been to the front. The others had young men, 20 to 22 years old. In every house, there were some of these inexperienced, some of these experienced soldiers. The young soldiers constantly gathered around the veterans, listening earnestly to their stories. These stories naturally had to do with war, what it was like, and what the old soldiers had learned. They were proud to be the old experienced veterans, and they were especially proud that they could teach these greenhorns who knew nothing about war. They kept saying, we want to tell you about the real war. Listen to us. We have seen things entirely different from this. And then they would begin a new story. Or they say, we're fighting under Hindenburg now, who has already beaten the Russians many times. If Hindenburg is commanding us, we are sure to win. Just wait and see. We shall capture thousands of Russians. It was still dark when the Germans went into the trenches. In surprisingly short time, the companies were formed and the attacks of each man took his proper position in the line. No questions were asked and there was no mix up. Everywhere one saw the old veterans at work, showing their young comrades how to behave and telling them what they should do. They knew exactly what would happen. Every now and then they would say, listen to me and you won't have any trouble. This calmed the inexperienced men. They no longer felt worry for their future. When day broke the Germans attack, the Russians were completely surprised. Their infantry fire was weak and their artillery shells scarcely fell at all. In a few minutes, the Germans were in the trenches. It was a pleasure to see how the young recruits acted. 
They watched their old experienced comrades carefully and did what they indicated. It was in short action that the Germans were victorious. Uh, immediately, the pursuit was taken up. The younger soldiers now trusted the seasoned comrades more than ever. These, in turn, trusted their comrades. And finally, everyone says, said, yes, we are fighting under Hindenburg. And that going back to the power of fighting for an inspirational and a, a known, proven, and uh, a decorated leader, somebody who has already beat the Russians, somebody who's already been there and done that, and they're all fighting under Hindenburg now. And, um, you know, just saying that it's motivating, not because I'm motivated about a German officer of Hindenburg, but because that's inspiring. It's inspiring that the men cared that much about Hindenburg even the senior guys, that they would tell those stories and they would pass those traditions and that Espirit de Corps on to the younger generation to the point where they got into their first scuffle and they said, you're right, we are Hindenburg's men. It's almost like they left their individuality at the door and they took up that group of Hindenburg's men and there was a code and an honor and a, might say you, a brand that came with Hindenburg's name that said, we will not let this brand down. This brand is proven, right? And so, and that's fucking awesome. Um, Moving moving forward, we got a little bit more. And analyzing the, the reaction of these young soldiers under varying conditions of the commit of the campaign, four elements and lessons stand out. Number one, first, they had a commander whose very name inspired confidence. We shall seldom have at the beginning of a war a proven commander, but we should have one who can inspire the confidence of the troops. It must be the aim of every commander to gain such confidence as quickly as possible. If he does, he can he can demand anything from his men. Number two, the German troops were young and had already undergone a short period, only undergone a short period of training. They had entered the army in October of 1915 and therefore had about three months of training behind them. However, they were intermingled with men who had already been to the war and had some war experience and who had lost and who at, who at last knew those first impressions that war brings. These veterans regard themselves as instructors to their young comrades. They felt a certain responsibility for them. Because of this feeling, the value of the old soldiers was markedly increased while the inexperienced men developed rapidly under their instruction. What do we learn from these facts for the future? According to my view, there is more tremendous important one tr tremendous important thing. At the beginning of the war, new troops would be recruited and trained in all countries and naturally will enter into combat later, later than the active troops, frequently months later. If we ever get in, if we give these inexperienced troops the backbone of experienced soldiers and experienced comrades, their efficiency will be tremendously increased and they will be spared heavy losses. Point number three, it will be recalled that on the foggy morning when the battalion was suddenly halted, halted its commander, issued an order, but adequate, but an adequate order, a short but adequate order, although there is no information of the enemy. This battalion commander had learned from his recent experience in war. He knew that the lack of knowledge of the enemy was a normal thing. He had learned that the absence of information does not justify withholding an order when your order is needed. The result was that the troops deployed and they were ready for combat when they met the enemy. The last point, point number four, finally, you saw the first German attack and the Russian attack in the snowstorm were effective because of the surprise factor. In the former, success was gained without heavy losses while the Russian attack failed. It was beaten off only with difficulty. The importance of surprise in war cannot be overestimated. As it becomes increasingly difficult to obtain, so does it become increasingly effective when it is obtained. No effort should be spared to make a decisive element of surprise work for, for us in war.
the surprise. Surprise element is everything. A lot of times when we were uh, when we were in country, it, it became it became um, almost like a game of chess. Like when we talked about taking 25 guys out at night and sending half that squad back. That way, a squad could sit almost un, unrealized because we knew they were counting us out. That's one of those things. Getting surprised on the enemy is huge. Just like when we get get surprised, not that not not a, not a very good outcome. If we get right. surprised by something, it's bad. Same with the enemy. If the enemy, if we can get the surprise, if we can use the cover of darkness, if we can use noise and light discipline to sneak up on them. Um, hell, if you look at Vietnam, some of the biggest kill to death ratio units were our hunter tracker, uh, hunter tracker or hunter killer teams. And these guys who were trained and experts in the art of tracking some somebody through the woods, looking for aerial and ground spores, something that I was taught at the hunter tracker school over on Geiger years ago. I mean, you can really, there's really tricks to the trade. And if you can sneak up and follow a 50 man VC platoon through the jungle and go to their birthing, well, you can go up and you can kill them all really great at night. Um, and that's what those units ended up doing. So no over uh, or underestimating the surprise element when it comes to war. All right, so this next section, guys, it's just a it's a little section, but I think it's an important section. This is going to be in chapter five. Uh, I'm sorry, four. Uh, constrained service with trained and untrained troops. Uh, I'm sorry, contrasting service. Um, we'll get into it. And war is quite different than peace. There is no situation that our imagination can conjure up even with remote that that remotely remotely approaches reality in peace we only have grammar school tactics but let us never forget that war is far more advanced than high school therefore if you would train for the realities of war take your men to unknown territory at night without maps and give them difficult situations in doing so all imagine in doing so use all the imagination you have let the commanders themselves make the decisions Teach your men that war begins, uh, war brings such surprises that often they will find themselves in apparently impossible situations. I've spoken earlier of the surprises of psychological nature. In this article, I've talked of surprises of tactical nature. Every soldier should know that war is a kaleidoscope, replete with constantly changing, unexpected, confusing situations. Its problems cannot be solved by a mathematical formula or a set of rules. All armies of the world learn in peacetime how how write long beautiful constructed how to write long beautiful constructed orders. I believe it is correct to learn uh, to think of everything and for, and to forget nothing. But we must never lose sight of the fact that in war of in a war of movement, our orders must be brief and simple, direct and to the point. Direct and to the point. In combat, you're not always going to have a five paragraph order with a scheme of maneuver written out for you uh, to minute detail. In combat, you may get a fragmentation order or a frago. And a frago is going to tell you the, the place, the time, and the end state of that mission. And then it's on you as a team or a squad or a platoon leader to take your guys, formulate your plan on the go and make that happen. A perfect example is in Marja one night we got fragoed that there was some enemy um, about a click and a half away and they were unknown. But we, we, there was unknown number of enemy, but they were sure they were enemy. They were hard pointing a compound and we were tasked to go over. We were tasked to go over to a certain grid where there's an unknown number of enemy and investigate and eliminate the problem. 
And that was what we were told in our Frago, short, concise, and to the point. This is where it is. This is our estimation of the numbers. This is our estimation of their, um, of their, of their element. And we need you to go interdict that. We need you to go make sure that's good. And, uh, and clear and concise order straight to the point. There's a tendency in peacetime to conduct, to conduct training by the use of stereotype situations, which were solved by stereotype solutions. In war, however, we cannot say this situation is so, and so accordingly the rules in which I've learned I must attack or defend. The situation that confront one in war are generally obscured, highly complicated, and never conform to type. They must be met by an alert mind, untrampled by a set of formulas or forms and fixed ideas. In peacetime tactical training, we should offer difficult, highly imaginative situations and require clear, concise, and simple orders. The more difficult the situation, the more simple the order must be. Overall, let us kill everything stereotype. Otherwise, it will kill us. And it's important. It's important uh, to, to make those make those fragos or those on-the-spot uh, ad racks as a squad leader. It's important to make them as simple to understand as, as possible. Because with all the adrenaline, the endorphins, and the chemical cocktails dumping from the spinal column and the penile gland down into the rest of the body, you're on cloud nine and you're you're just shaking and amped and ready to go uh, as, as a GP warfighter. And it's up to that leader to give those clear, concise commands. This is where the enemy is. This is who's firing here. This is when you're firing. Commence firing on my commander or when ready. And there's very, very simple orders and very, very simple format in, in, uh, in the ways in which we can do these things. Um, so we're going to move on now to uh, the following uh, it's page 70 for me i know all books aren't the same it's impossible to get forward uh to get forward and equal impossible to with to withdraw any man who raised his head even an inch or two was as good as dead unfortunately several men in the little group did raise their head desperately the others tried to dig in with their hands knees and even their mouths they scooped out dirt until they secured some degree of cover the russians fire now drew a reply of kind from the German lines on the other side of the marsh. Thus, the little group was exposed from fire uh, to the fire of their own comrades as well as to the enemy. Almost every, almost at the very muzzle of the Russians' machine guns, they had passed that night quiet, motionless, waiting for the death that the daylight would certainly bring. Anyone who had been exposed to dire peril for a long time without being able to oppose it can understand the terrible nervous test such a night imposed on a handful of soldiers and so that just i guess the only reason that i that i uh the big reason that i highlighted that area is because you must do whatever is necessary if that means you're digging with your mouth that means it's dig you're digging with your mouth in combat you will learn how to get small um you should learn that before combat though you should learn how to get small in training we have the infantry immersion trainer on camp lejeune we have the uh combat kinetics gunfighter gym on Camp Lejeune. These are two of the newer um, technologically driven uh, training platforms that we have on Camp Lejeune that can absolutely revolutionize a warfighter. You're talking about gauging uh, lethality of every shooter. You're talking about putting people into situations with strobe lights and screaming babies and loud music and thumping, just absolute chaos, and then making them perform this mission. And then being able to after action uh, 
the decisions in which they made on a screen and say, do you see where you made this decision? It's kind of like some of our miles gear or our, or our sim gears out now out in the field when we were training. You could get small. You learn that you can get hit from a long, long, uh, long distance away. Oh, and by the way, we have the technology now to pull up everybody's avatar on a screen and say, this is your blue on blue fire. This is your blue on blue fire. This is where you and your team moved off in a wedge formation, it looks like, but then you ended up online, you know, and you can after action all of that. The more light combat we can make our training, which is the whole premise of this book, the better our soldiers will be when they're actually confirmed with the realities of war. This says, here's a point that will bear special emphasis. When all is said and done, it's the infantryman who makes the attack and whose hands reset the decision of victory or defeat. It is the back in which sustains the heaviest burden, his body which suffers the greatest hardship, and his life which is suspended by the most tenuous thread. Another thing that Von Schell talks about in this book a lot I like is giving giving an end state or a commander's intent and this next chapter goes to that and all the marines all you guys all you out operators and pipe hitters that are sitting here watching this we appreciate you giving us your time and we appreciate the ability to try to throw things at your way maybe you haven't seen um but commander's intent is everything when i was coming up in the marine corps it was everything if i knew what my lieutenant wanted me to do as a squad leader at the end of the day, that's what I knew. I knew at the end of the day, even if my plans fell apart, even if supporting arms fell apart, at the end of the day, I had to take X. And taking X is just a matter of taking X. Figuring out the best solution and then going and taking X. And sometimes sometimes it's not sexy. Sometimes it don't look good. But as long as you complete your, your commander's intent and your end state for that mission, you're going to be in the green. Back to the book. The endless little details have been exactly portrayed in order that the reader may appreciate the myriad of things that must be thought of and accomplished in preparing to co a coordinated attack. At the very beginning of the war, all armies learned that far more time is required to prepare an attack than had been thought. They also learned once the battle is joined and, and the opportunity to issue detailed orders is gone. For this reason, orders should cover everything that can be foreseen. The mission, in particular, must be unmistakably clear so that once units become engaged, all subordinate commands can act with the unity of purpose. And that speaks to some of the gunfighting laws that we have, unity of command is being one of them. If everybody that is fighting on the field that day has the uh, same commander's intent and the same end state, then they will all be working for one common goal together and uh, and have that unity of command. Some of the Points taken from the end of this chapter, attacks must be well prepared and discussed if they are to succeed. There's only one opportunity to issue detailed orders and that is before the battle. When the action has already begun, orders must be short, concise, to the point. Every fight develops differently than expected. Officers and troops must realize this in peace in order that they will not lose courage when unexpected occurs in war. Four, Little is known of the enemy in war. The attack is the best way to dispel obscurity. Five, reserve must be employed at the point where troops have been successful and not where they have failed. And six, and finally, it's a, it is again seen that the successes of knowledge and battlefield psychology are powerful influences for inculcating the sense of confidence and security in the troops. Nothing will shorten their ability to resist the disconcerting oppressions of battle more powerfully than these. And that was his after actions for chapter five.
moving on to chapter to the next chapter, the Army of the United States. And in this chapter, I found it while I was reading it, I found it uh, almost like uh, like Von Schell um, admired uh, the United States, which I think he probably did. I think he had not admired the United States and the, and the geographical location of the United States, making the military of the U.S. what it is and giving it the, the abilities that it does. In the opening, it says this article appeared in January 25, 1932. Number of military woken block. I'm not sure what that is. Um, it says every army must be or an organic element of both its people and its state if it is to fulfill its mission. If we hope to grasp the spirit of, of an army, if we seek to understand its opinions, its thoughts, its organizations, we must first concern ourselves with the mission that is assigned by the state. And I think this is something huge, especially it's still, it still uh, rings true today as it did then. If you do not have support of the nation in which your army is constructed from, things will go sideways and they will go bad. Look at Vietnam. Look at the withdrawal recently from Afghanistan. Yep. When the nation wasn't on the side of it, it was everything that was bad, evil, and, 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 and all-encompassing, horrible thing. Uh, you look at our war. You look at World War II. They still call them the greatest generation. You know what I mean? They still call World War II guys greatest generation. And, and we had ribbons and a homecoming when we came home. Our nation was behind us. And not only does that change things for the morale and the inspiration and the motivation of the troops while they're in the actual, uh, while they're in the actual suck, but once they return from it, uh, transitioning and converting back into society and conforming back to those ways when those ways are not accepted will be much harder. So yeah. we'll leave, leave that there. <clears throat> Let's move on. Uh, you got anything on that? <laughs> Good. All right. Thus, we see the Americans' regular army system provides an enormous educational institution devoted principally to developing teachers who will train the reserves in the nation at large. It is truly a fine system, but we, bound by our chains, can only look with envy. Speaking to the fact that the United States has multiple shorelines, a large navy, and, uh, and a large ground force. It does, however, have its disadvantages. To the officer means, uh, to be an officer means to be a leader, to be a leader of troops in battle. It is certainly co correct that leaders like great artists are born and not made. But if they are born artists requires years of hard study and practice before he masters his art. So is it with the military, so too is it with the militaries. If he has learned the art of war, he must practice with the tools of the art. As previously stated, the American officer's primary function is that, the, that of a teacher, since he must teach others how to teach. But to be a successful teacher, must he not be a leader as well? It should be remembered that in the regular army will always participate in war and under its own officers. But if the American officer is primarily a teacher with his principal training in schools, does sufficient time and opportunity remain to develop him as a leader? And this is something that could be argued both ways. I think that I think that definitely in my in my studies, especially as it pertains to war, it seems to me that of course I think I agree with the intestinal calling and the intestinal courage that it takes to lead men in combat. I think that there's something inborn about that. But just like he says about the artists, 
I may have been a born leader, but there's no way I could have led effectively and efficiently if I did not take the schools, the time, the training, and eight years of experience before I got on that ground to actually do what I was supposed to do in that situation, the way I was supposed to do it. And there's a lot to be said about that. Um, and there's a lot to be said about the way we do it. I mean, we end up winning the war. So I don't know how you could look at us and think anything other than uh, or helped win the war. I wouldn't say we did it single-handedly, both in one and two, but we definitely helped out a lot. And uh, and it's like, I don't know how someone uh, on the other side being beat so bad could criticize the army in which that beat them, other than to say that that's the only thing they could do because they didn't have coastline and they didn't have a Navy and they didn't have a quick reaction deploying force like we did. And uh, they definitely didn't have the American spirit and tenacity that we have. So there is something to be said about uh especially not at the end of the war at the beginning of the war they did but they had been ground sure. down so far at the end of the by the end of the war now they still could have won it in the in the last year of the war but it was just you know you got to remember world war one they didn't they didn't uh they didn't surrender they it was an right. armistice so that was the other thing that always kind of oversees all of these after actions from world war one yeah, I'm just going to, this is the last chapter of the book and it closes out. So I'm just going to finish, uh, finish reading uh, Von Schell's words here. It says, within the limits of his brief article, we can only suggest answers to such a question and the undoubtable difficulties attended thereto. How is a uniform viewpoint of an officer corps attained? Under the conditions prevailing in the Army of the United States, it is obvious that the officer schools cannot be content with introducing their students to the world of military thought and merely guiding their thought process so that their intelligence will ripen later under the guidance of older officers. Since the opportunities for practical training in the service are limited to the student to what he takes with him from the school, definite is a definite answer to his questions. He must be given a standard idea of principles. His thinking must be led down prepared channels to the solution recognized as most appropriate. Independent thinking must take second place to the uniform solution. Therefore, the danger naturally arises of too much emphasis being placed on a set of forms. Now for an answer to the other question I raised, the double training as teachers and leaders. We have sought to make clear the principal ta task for American officers teaching far distant from the troops and the knowledge essential for his purposes given in condensed courses in schools. The American realize the Americans realize, of course, that the officer must be trained as a leader as well as a teacher. They also recognize with regret that their achievement of the ideal, i.e. of training teachers and leaders at the same time, is unattainable only owing to human imperfections in the short period of time in schools and courses. Nevertheless, everything, is pos everything possible is done to train the student as a leader. War strength, war strength units are at the disposal of at least one of these schools, the infantry school. And all leaders post in the units are frequently filled with students during combat exercises. One in each uh, each grade, once each grade, in each grade, every officer as a rule performs command duties for two years in foreign positions. These units are, uh, in these possessions are stronger numerically than corresponding units in the United States and offer the best opportunity for training the officers as leaders. Nevertheless, the emphasis of both the activity of training the American regular officer is repeated once again in the teaching field.
Before the war in Germany, uh, before the war, the German army, in addition to its other duties, was charged with the military training of people as a whole. We solved our problem by training reserves with the regular army. We could do this because numerical strength of our, the numerical strength of our army permitted it. The numerically weak American army cannot train these reserves in its own units, even if historical and political grounds did not forbid it. Otherwise, had to be found. Their system seems strange to us, but it's undoubtedly best suited for the American conditions. The relative geographic isolation of the United States renders their scheme altogether practical. These American methods, however, are neither suitable nor practical in Europe without material modifications. So, again, guys, this is a perfect example of how we can get smarter using the same information over the years, just as Gunny Finney talked about in his podcast. So, I appreciate you being here. Matt, you want to take us out? All right, guys, that's the end of the episode. And uh, we just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Um, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And uh, like and five star on Apple I iTunes. And uh, spread the word. All right. Y'all have a good one. Bye. How we doing, everybody? This is the co-host of Choices Not Chances podcast, Matthew Charette. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. The folks at Louisiana Gun Shop have been a longtime supplier of firearms and shooting supplies and services, as well as very good friends of mine. In episode seven of the podcast, we interviewed the owner and founder, Harlan Bottler. At Louisiana Gun Shop, the sky is the limit when it comes to getting the firearms and accessories you want for your current or future firearms. They have a nice selection of handguns, rifles, and shotguns in stock or can order just about any firearm you could want or need. They specialize in concealed carry handguns and custom AR-15 builds. In addition to firearms, they also carry ammo, suppressors, optics, and a wide variety of gun parts for the upgrade and maintenance of your firearm. If you want to get further in the upgrade side of things, they provide customization services such as Cerakote, laser engraving, and Kydex holsters. Louisiana Gun Shop is located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. It used to be Louisiana Gun Shop did not have an online presence, but now I am happy to announce that their website is up and ready for business for online sales to all 50 states at louisianagunshop.com slash pages slash cnc. Louisiana Gun Shop also offers Louisiana residents concealed carry classes for a very reasonable price. Holland's experience in the concealed carry space when it comes to the laws and the do's and the don'ts is pivotal in attaining your Louisiana concealed carry license. As well as the firearm market, Harlan also conducts explosives training for Louisiana blasters licenses for oil field and special effects workers in Louisiana. Workers in these fields from out of state also need to have this training in order to complete work in Louisiana. So whether you need a firearm, upgrade your old firearm, targets and ammo for a range day, or you just like to talk to people who support the Second Amendment, Louisiana Gun Shop is your place, either in person or online. Remember, they are located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette, or online at louisianagunshop.com slash pages slash CNC. Check the episode description for the link. You can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Louisiana Gun Shop. A special thanks to Harlan and Jenny at Louisiana Gun Shop 
for sponsoring the show. Please support them so they can support us and keep the podcast free for all. Thanks. Have a great day. Semper Fi and God bless America. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Funny.